we are continuing our series uh, this morning called The Art of Neighboring. And uh, last week we, we kicked off uh, the series and we, we talked about uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you remember, Trent uh, retold that story and the power of that uh, the power of that story uh, being uh, that God chose the enemy of the man who was in the ditch on the side of the road uh, to come and love him. Uh, and loving our neighbor means loving our enemies. And uh, loving, uh, and it means also loving our physical neighbors. And uh, so we just talked a little bit about the practicalities of, uh, of neighboring, our physical neighbors being involved in our communities. Part of why we're excited about the, the building purchase is actually to take neighboring seriously as followers of Jesus. How do we be good neighbors, but also individually, how do we take ownership in our neighborhoods and uh, love those that are around us uh, in very practical, meaningful ways. And so that's the context of the series, The Art of Neighboring. So often we talk about neighboring, we get a little bit uncomfortable because we think that, uh, you know, as a Christian and being a neighbor, that we have ulterior motives. And we talked about the Vivint guy last week. How many of you guys got visited by a Vivint guy this past week? I, I had my phone blowing up and said, that guy you were talking about last week, he came to my house and visited me. Uh, he is good. And, uh, and he was good. And for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, there was a certain salesman I was talking about that, uh, that is a Mormon. He spent two years on a mission going door to door, and so he's got his skills finely tuned. And we get a little bit nervous as we think about neighboring uh, because we feel that sometimes it's an obligation to be a neighbor. As a follower of Jesus, I don't want my neighbors to, become, to feel like they're projects. And we just kind of took the pressure off last week and said, you know what, we don't, we don't love our neighbors to convert our neighbors. We love our neighbors because we're converted. The heart of the gospel is that uh, God loves us without any strings attached. That God sent his son Jesus to earth to die a criminal's death on a cross to make a way for us to love him, uh, but he doesn't coerce us into that decision, that he loves us regardless of our response back to him. And so as followers of Jesus, we reciprocate this. We, we give the love that God gives us away to our neighbors with no strings attached. Part of Serve Day is to love our communities with no strings attached. We're not loving them so they show up at church or anything like that. We just want people to experience the presence and the love of God. And that's what uh, Greg was talking about in some of the things that Partners is doing uh, in Burma and in other places uh, around the world. So Jesus knew that we needed a strategy. You know, he gathered his disciples together and he said, you know, we're going to go out. We're going to love the world. We want them to experience God's love. And he gave them a strategy. And we, we might think strategically that, you know, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to give you a party trailer and you're going to throw community block parties. You know, here's, here's the strategy. Here's the, here's the idea. Uh, or maybe he, he said, you know, here's a five-step program. If you go and do this thing and you, you introduce your cute little kid and then they'll, it'll warm their hearts and then after that, you, you know, he didn't, he didn't give anything like that. And I think sometimes we overlook the simple but profound strategy that Jesus gave his disciples to break into their communities, to break into their world uh, and to make a kingdom impact. 
And the strategy that Jesus gave can be found in Luke chapter 10. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Luke chapter 10, the beginning of the chapter. Uh, The scripture will be on the screen uh, as well. You know, and sometimes we give ourselves excuses. We, we, you know, we say, well, you know, our world's kind of closed to the gospel. It's closed to Christians, to the church. And, and just to give a bit of context, so was the, uh, the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. You know, the church was, uh, was accused of being incestuous, incent, sorry, that the church was having sex with their brothers and sisters. That was an accusation against the church at the time. Uh, they were accused of cannibalism. They thought that they were actually, because they talked about communion, right, and eating, uh, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, the world around them just thought these Christians were weird, right? Uh, they were cannibals. They were uh, inter-family dynamics going on. Uh, that there was a lack of patriotism because they refused to acknowledge any uh, God outside of uh, Jesus, outside of uh, the God that was revealed in Jesus. And so they were accused of uh, causing natural disasters because they, the Romans thought, you know, the reasons the natural disasters are happening is because we have these uh, Christians that won't bow their knee to any other God. Uh, in fact, they were accused of being atheists. And so they were not a very popular group. And so this is the kind of cultural uh, environment that the early church was living in. And so Jesus gives his disciples a strategy. He says, I know how you can break into a world that is going to have their hearts closed towards you. And this is what I want you to do. In Luke chapter 10, he gathers the 72 disciples and he sends them out. And this is the strategy. He says, the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in Paris to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go. And remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. And so if I could summarize the strategy of Jesus, it's simply this. He's saying, don't go from home to home. He's like, go into a place, go into an area, and look for a person of peace. That's the strategy. It's not overly complicated. Look for a person of peace. And there's three things that constitute a person of peace. A person of peace is someone who likes you. That's pretty important. You know, if you're convinced that your friend down the street is a person of peace, but they don't want to be around you, that's a problem. Uh, Probably not the person of peace. So a person of peace is someone who likes you. A person of peace... Uh, is someone that will listen to you. And a person of peace is also someone that will serve you. And fundamental to this understanding of the person of peace is that God has already been at work in your neighborhood, in the lives of those who are living around you long before you moved in. Do you believe that? 
A couple, one person believes that. Anybody else believe that? Do you believe that God is already at work in your community? That God is already at work in your neighbor's lives, in your friend's lives? It's not something that is actually depending on you, that we serve and love a missionary God. God is on mission. Uh, he's looking for us to partner with him, but he's already there. He's already active. And so fundamental to this understanding of the person of peace is recognizing that God moved into the neighborhood a long time ago. When Jesus came to earth, he moved in in, the, in flesh. You know, as I said last week in the, uh, in the message, Eugene Peterson translates it in John 1, that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. God's moved into the neighborhood. God's already working. And so the strategy that Jesus gives his disciples is to recognize, you know, God's gone before you. Now when you go, God has actually put in place a person of peace for you. And all you need to do is actually identify who that person of peace is, and they will be the person that unlocks the community for you. They will unlock the block. So that's really one of the fundamental, simple points that I'm making this morning, but it's profound because I believe that if the church actually did this, if we intentionally prayed and asked God to show us who the person of peace is that he's put in our lives, uh, things would start to happen. And I think sometimes we get overwhelmed with the idea of transforming a neighborhood or how do I bring my whole community together. Uh, God is not giving you a strategy to do all of those things. He's actually giving you a strategy to identify a person of peace. Uh, and then he's inviting you to follow his lead as that relationship develops and, and you'll see where it goes. This neighboring idea. Uh, you know, it's funny that we have to talk about the art of neighboring. And last week, uh, we mentioned it's difficult in our day and age, especially in suburbia, where people drive into the garages, walk into their houses, close their doors. Uh, how do you actually get into the lives of other people? This isn't only a problem or a challenge for Jesus followers, but I think it's a felt need that every human being living in suburbia actually feels. Tim Hortons uh, recognized, can I get a holler for Tim Hortons? By the way, if you're new here, you go to the Welcome Center, we'll give you a Tim Hortons card uh, for free, our gift to you. Um, Tim Hortons actually identified, you know, Canadian company identified this need, this felt need that Canadians have, and they responded to it uh, in a quite a cool and unique way uh, that you'll see in this video. I'm Andrew from Tim Hortons. We're trying to figure out if people actually know their neighbors or not. Okay. We see each other in passing. I uh, don't know them at all. Would you be interested in having a cup of coffee with your neighbor? Right now? Yeah. You have an accent. Where are you from? I do. I'm uh, English. Oh, really? It's interesting, eh? Yeah. You bring a coffee? There oh, you go, hey. Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> So you just got home not long ago? Oh, yeah, I came a few hours ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So. What do you do for work? I was just going to ask you. <laughs> um, I work in sales. Oh, okay. Yeah. How do you like the house? Love the house. It's completely renovated. I noticed. Uh, I mean, I was watching the whole thing go down, obviously. It like, must have been really annoying for you. So what, what do you do for fun? 
now, I mean, everything is kind of the kids. <laughs> I just started my new job. Where did you start working? I'm a chef. Oh, OK, oh. that's awesome. I'm not quite that Canadian yet. I don't know if I'm that Canadian yet. Like, I can't skate. I've never watched a hockey game in my life. Why haven't we met sooner? I know the mom life, the busy mom life. I know sometimes I see you <laughs> struggling with my two. Right? Sure. We have a barbecue this summer. Definitely. I agree. Yeah. And I'll do the dessert. I mean, maybe we'll have a coffee inside the house at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Definitely not minus five. But, uh... So next weekend, I'm going to Montreal with a girlfriend. I'm going to Montreal too, actually. Next weekend? Getting to know your neighbors more than just knowing their name. Typically, when I meet neighbors, first you got to do the hello from a distance. We see each other, but we don't really talk or hang out. When you actually take the time to start talking to somebody, it's amazing what you can find out that you have in common. I'm from a different country, and I don't have a lot of family around me, so I consider my neighbors family. Canada, gain a new friend, meet your neighbor. It's as simple as that. Yeah, cool, hey? What a beautiful video. And it, um, I, I would kind of feel creepy. The one guy, I was like, yeah, I was watching you renovate your house. I was, um, you know, I wonder how many of my neighbors would I'd be able to say that to. You know, I was in the window. I saw, I saw that. Um, but my, one of my first thoughts when I watched that was, uh, you know, how Tim Hortons... Uh, and we love Tim Hortons here, uh, but should, should it not be followers of Jesus that are leading the way in neighboring? You know, should it be, shouldn't it be more than coffee that is bringing people together? Uh, and I believe that the Spirit of God is already at work in our neighborhoods wanting to bring people together uh, if his followers would be aware of what he's doing and what he's inviting them to. Uh, these are my good friends, Calvin and Lorinda, uh, who have who are honing in on this art of neighboring, and they've been working at it actually for, for a while, and I thought it'd be really great uh, just to have them up here and share uh, just a little bit of their own story, their own journey of, of what this has looked like. And, uh, you know, ten, about 10 years ago, you guys moved from the north, 13? Was it more than, wow. 13 years ago, you guys moved from the north of Calgary all the way to the deep south, and... Uh, and I, I've heard Calvin make a comment uh, on the type of neighbor uh, he used to be uh, and then how they wanted to intentionally make that different 13 years ago when they moved in the south. So, so, Cal, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what was life like when you were up in the north uh, in those northern parts? Yeah. And, uh, and then why did you want to make a shift and in, in what did that intentionally look like when you came south? Yeah, I think early on in our ministry, while we were up uh, in North Calgary, uh, busy, life's busy, you know, kind of the stage of life, kids uh, run around, and uh, really, you, you got to make your career um, happen, and, uh, you know, for uh, uh, those of you that are career kind of driven, uh, you work hard, and you're up early, and you run out of the house, and you come home for, uh, you know, late at night and all that stuff, and so in, there, was a, there was a time when we were making one of those moves from, I think it was a duplex to a house, and I just remember the neighbor next door. He was a really good, uh, kind of laid-back, uh, new-age guy who was helping people get in touch with their aura and stuff like that. And we'd have discussions every now and then. And while I was running in and out of the house, he'd be sitting in his bathrobe at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on his, you know, 4 by 4 <laughs> deck looking at me. My thoughts were, I don't know if my lifestyle of being busy is really 
making an impact to draw him into the fullness of what God desires because of my busyness. Mm. And that was a, a bit of a check for us. And so we intentionally started to try to be more engaged in, uh, in our neighborhoods in different ways. And that was part of when we moved down here. Okay. Yeah, and you were, I mean, Calvin was working as a pastor uh, up north. And, you know, when, when I think about the last week, you talked about the, the religious professionals being too busy to stop, right? They, you know, I, I think I can resonate with that. And I, you know, when you talk about your old lifestyle, you know, I get that. I understand that. And then, so you guys came down south and you wanted to be a bit more intentional uh, with your neighboring and said, you know, we don't want to live like that anymore. Uh, we want to do it differently. We want to actually know our neighbors, make an impact uh, in our communities. Uh, and so when you think about, you know, we just looked at Jesus' strategy in Luke 10 of the person of peace. Uh, you know, when he moved into Sundance and... And before God started unlocking the community for you, who were some, uh, was there a person of peace? Was there somebody that kind of began that journey for you? Yeah, um, I think it was even the day we moved in or a couple days later, um, the neighbor across the street noticed that we had a little five-year-old, which was Brayson at the time, who's just graduating. Oh, oh Brayson. Yeah. Look at you now. <laughs> Brayson loves being the center of attention. Hey, Brayson. Yeah. Um, anyways, she had a six-year-old boy. And um, so we started talking, and we were all excited. So she asked me about the rest of my children and stuff like that. And then I asked her if Liam was her only child, and she said no. And she shared her story about lo losing a baby just right after birth. And that was a huge connection point for us immediately. And I was like, oh, me too. And then you start talking, and that... I just, something clicked right there. I just knew that this person God had placed in my path and was going to be a significant point, you know, significant person that I was going to get to know. And over time, we got to know each other more, and she started to come to church with us and had a, a significant thing happen um, for her spiritually um, as far as that pain that she still carried from her loss. And uh, so that was really cool just to kind of see that happen. That's awesome. So describe to us, so that happened, um, and then I know that you had a number of connections that started to unravel for you. Uh, share a little bit with us, you know, some of the stories with your neighbors that uh, you've been able to start participating in uh, over these last 13 years. So I'm the introvert. This is the extrovert. The social introvert. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so, so this neighbor lady is, is quite uh, extroverted, uh, like sister. my wife. And so if you're going to be together, you got to have a... What was that over there? you, you got to have a party. So it doesn't take long. These two begin to connive and uh, start to have a party. But before that happens, there's some other things that kind of walk us along which was uh, one uh, early on in our time here. Uh, Halloween's happening. You know, and again, the people are little, our kids are little, and so you know, the dads kind of get together, myself and Conroy, we walk around the neighborhood, and Lorinda and... Sheila. Sit on the, in the front. We bring the, you know, on the driveway, we bring the uh, portable little fire pit thing there, and they sit there, and then what happened? So we just had a great time. We passed out our candy from that way, and it was all great. 
And the next year, by that point, I had gotten to know another neighbor from around, kind of over on the circle, and my neighbor across the street. And she brought her neighbor, and Chantel came, and soon there was like four or five of us. And then the following year, there was about eight of us, six, six or eight. We had some new neighbors moved in. So they came over, and while the dads took all the kids out around the the neighborhood, we sat there with all our candy out in front of us and just had a great time chatting and enjoying each other. And then as time went on, we kind of went, you know, I, I've heard of people having a block party. This could be kind of fun. And so I just had to tell Chantel, and she's like, yeah, let's do it. So that next September, we planned a block party. And we just put out little flyers in all the mailboxes on the Crescent and it turned out to be the hottest day of September. It was fantastic. And everybody, we dragged a few barbecues onto the street and um, or onto our garage pad, I guess, parking pad. And then we had, you know, a number of neighbors came and it was really cool. We had a great time with them. And then, of course, Halloween passed and the party got a little bit, a little bit bigger. And then the next year in September, we had another block party, and all of a sudden, there's new families, and there's some from over here on this side, and some from around that way, and all of these families that had moved into the neighborhood, unbeknownst to these families, because it is around the corner, they all met, and they were like, hey, you guys live here too? Yeah, our kids all go to school together, because the school is not very far away. And they were all excited. We even had a bouncy castle and a, I don't know what else some of the neighbors brought. Um, and the kids had a hoot getting to know each other. And the parents were so excited because there was more neighbors with little children. And I remember going, ah, yes, this is why we do this. Yeah, the new neighbors actually think this is normal. <laughs> it's just kind of what we do. This is a great neighborhood. How long have you guys been doing this? Oh, man, like, like three years. years. <laughs> it's amazing. Right? So, yeah, it's like a tradition now, right? We have, uh, there's probably 8 to 12 houses in Halloween, right? And then all the, all the dishes are there. So when the kids come, they go, this is like a gold mine. <laughs> right? Fill up their, their bag from each house. And us as, uh, you know, the adults, we have a big potluck. We, you know, the garage door is open. We're eating there. We got a couple fire pits going. We got Christmas parties going on now. Someone's going to host a Christmas party. Right, and then there's the summer uh, barbecue as well. In fact, Lorinda was at the planning meeting this morning, uh, getting ready for our uh, our uh, summer barbecue. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Now, Cal, you were sharing with me a uh, neat story. Uh, you know, crisis happened on your block, and because of the relationship that it developed, uh, you kind of got to be the practical presence of God in a difficult situation. Can you describe that to us? Yeah, these are, you know, as you, as you do life with people, we all got our our stuff by way of, you know, career and raising kids and activities we're involved in. Those are often fantastic ways to touch people's lives. And then, of course, the neighbors and how you're getting rid of the dandelions and all that stuff, right, is all parts of discussion and what happened to your transmission on your car. Um, uh, right? And uh, people get to know you, and you, you break into their lives in different ways. And sometimes, as we do life, as we know, uh, things happen that you're not planning on. Right? Obviously, illness and death, and uh, one particular day, my neighbor, who's a retired gentleman, and his wife, and uh, we had just been chatting. He was waiting for his son to come and to move some uh, drywall into the basement, and as well as his son was waiting for the truck to come. It was taking long. So he jumped on his bike, went for a ride, and ended up getting hit by a car and was killed. Um, 
Right, uh, incredibly tragic uh, event. Um, we're right next door to them, we love those people. And we're a part of walking with them through that. He asked me to do the funeral, um, even though they're you know, people of faith, right? And we had that dialogue, but he just said, would you just come help us out? So, uh, you know, a great opportunity uh, to uh, serve and help and walk alongside in an incredible difficult time in, in the lives of one of our neighbors. Yeah. And another situation that happened was um, one of our neighbors, a few houses over, um, uh, his mom lives with them. And he has a sister, and she was uh, with a man, and she um, was pregnant, and um, there was some, it be became quite an abusive situation, and so she had to move in with our neighbors, um, and it was about a month before the baby was due, and our neighbor let us know. So it was great, and she had the baby, and then one of the other neighbors sent a mass email and said, hey, we're going to have a baby shower for this girl. So here we were, the, the neighbor ladies. We came and just blessed this poor young girl who just had nobody now but her family. We blessed her with all kinds of stuff for her baby. And it was so cool because I didn't have to plan it. I got to just show up. So that was a bonus for me too. Yeah. Yeah, Cal and Lorinda, they've done community really well with their neighborhood, also their, their small group. And, you know, a couple of times that I've uh, been over there at a graduation or, you know, some other event, uh, you know, they have a faith community, they got neighbors, you know, they got, you know, the whole range of folks that are, are there doing life uh, together. And it's quite, quite a neat thing that you guys have done. Um, and... Uh, and because of that, you guys are facing a difficult decision right now. You're looking at moving again. Uh, and uh, can you share just a little bit? You know, what I'm curious on is, you know, when you move from the north to the south, how many of your neighbors in the north do you think would have noticed? Uh, and now when you're moving again, what, what do you think is going to be the felt impact of that in the community you are now part of? I think there's uh, a couple things. Uh, part of uh, your, you've uh, coined the term uh, people of peace. I certainly think that Chantel's been that for us. I think um, uh, others, like her husband as well, have come alongside and helped us in our time of need, like fixing computer stuff or, um, you know, I need a ladder. And uh, I need to borrow his ladder twice a year to put the lights up and take them down. Right? right? So I know he, he, he may not miss that. But, but there's a component there. <laughs> There's a component there of, I'm not sure if other neighbors really asked to borrow his ladder. Um, I, I, I feel uh, a little bit more this time when we move will be missed because there will be a bit of a vacuum. Because we've, we've tried to cross our lives with people um, more intentionally in our neighborhood. Which I think was a little different than sometimes in light of um, how we were living. Yeah, earlier on in our life. So uh, yeah, I believe people will they'll wonder what happened and where we are because we may not be knocking on their door for help. We also may not be taking that extra 10 minutes to talk to them as they're out mowing their grass and seeing how life's going for them and what's happening in their work world with up and down economy, older parents that are growing ill, and we're, we're talking to them about it. Right. I believe they'll miss that. How about you, hon? Yeah, I told... The one I told both the ladies this morning that we're probably moving, and they were just like, oh, oh, you know, so we had a little discussion around that and and stuff. And so it was really neat to just finally share that with them, and rather than just put the sign up and, hey, so guess what, um, kind of thing. I've probably had, we've been talking about it for the last 
year. And so it was a, it's a grie- been a grieving point for me. I've had to really grieve leaving these relationships because it's been so much fun. But I said to Dalen the other day, you know, I think I'm really excited about getting into a new neighborhood and doing this all over again because it's been fun. And it's a great way to get to know your neighbors. And for me, the reward was just watching them all connect and get excited. And, and I mean, we live in a great neighborhood. There's a lot of people that know our door code. So I just love it that we feel safe. <laughs> just don't tell anybody else. Make sure you change um, that before the new yeah. people. <laughs> but um, I'm going to miss that. But I'm really, I'm actually excited about doing this again with our new neighbors. Yeah. Hopefully they don't have a noisemaker like yours. Yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. Do they, uh, your security system, is that Vivint? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, we've got two cats. Yeah, there you go. Uh, well, let's give uh, Kel and Lorinda a hand. Thanks, guys, for sharing. You know, when Cal was telling me, even the ladder point earlier, he said, he said, why would I go out and buy a ladder uh, when I only use it two times a year and it would take away the opportunity for me to connect with my neighbor to borrow his ladder? Um, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Uh, last week, we looked at the Good Samaritan story. Allow me to read this story uh, one more time. Uh, in Luke 10, 25, uh, it says, One day an expert of religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him the question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story, and Jesus often does. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho when he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And we learned last week, you know, Samaritans were just despised by Jews because they represented uh, this mix of race and religion, and they, were, they polluted uh, the holy uh, call that God had for Israel to be a set-apart people. Uh, and so they despised Samaritans. He came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion on him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Historically, when the story's been read and when I've read it um, throughout my life, I've thought that the point of the story, and this is kind of the angle we took last week, was really this, that this despised Samaritan chose to love his enemies, or who your enemy chose to love you, 
This Samaritan chose to love the guy on the road that the religious folks were not willing to love. So go and be like the good Samaritan. Is that how you read it? That's how I've always read it. If you pay attention to the grammatical structure of the original question and Jesus' concluding point, there's a phenomenal flip that Jesus does. So the man's original question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a long story and he concludes with the point, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Who was my neighbor? Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? See, Jesus isn't putting the religious expert who's asking the question in the shoes of the despised Samaritan. Jesus is actually putting the religious expert who asked the question in the shoes of the man who's half dead in the ditch. And I believe part of the point that Jesus is making in this telling of the parable is if you are half dead, if you are struggling for your life, then anybody who gives you help is your neighbor. You might have all these ideas of who your enemies are, who your allies are, but at the end of the day, when your life is on the line, the person that reaches out their hand to help you is your neighbor. If we are going to recover the art of neighboring, I believe that we need to recover the art of receiving. Part of the issue with this religious individual uh, was that he wanted to justify himself. Uh, This religious individual uh, felt that he was righteous. He felt like he was holy. He did not acknowledge that he had his own needs. I wonder how many folks in our world whether our immediate world or the wider world, really feel like followers of Jesus have needs that they can respond to. You know, what, one of the things I love about what Calvin said in you know, just the passing comment about the ladder is, you know, why would, I get, why would I go buy a ladder when that would supply, and then I would supply for my own needs and rob my, my neighbor from the opportunity of giving to me so I can receive from my neighbor. See, the gospel itself is anchored on the foundation that every single human being has a need that they can't fulfill on their own. That God himself, the creator of the world, loves us so much that he sent his son to earth to die on the cross, to be resurrected again, because he wanted to make a way for us to be healed out of our great need out of our great uh, fallenness, out of the sin in your life and mine that separates us from God the Father and only through Jesus, through God himself redeeming us, rescuing us, could we actually be called friends, neighbors with God. God invites us to be his friend. But we cannot be friends with God unless we recognize our own need. That's how relationship works. Relationship is a two-way street. The title of the sermon this morning is Two-Way Street because unhealthy people either always give. So you might be the type of person that always gives and gives and gives and gives, but you actually don't know how to receive. And I would ask you, why is that? 
You know, why are some of us too proud to receive anything from others? Unhealthy people always, uh, also always uh, receive, 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 and they never give. And I would ask you, why is that? You know, if you're someone that always is receiving, but you're never giving, why is that? A healthy two-way relationship is one of giving and receiving. You know, what Jesus is tapping into here in the Good Samaritan story is that if you are a follower of Jesus and you do not recognize your own need, then you actually can't be neighbors with God and you won't actually be able to be neighbors with those around you. When we go and build houses every year in Mexico, um, often these families that we build houses for cook us a meal. They take their whole month's wages and you, and, and you go and you build them a house and they're living in, uh, you know, between a couple of pieces of plywood and a tin roof and they're fitting four people into this and then they, you got a team of 15, 16 people and they cook all of this chicken or all this beef and they're making you tacos and they want to bless you and you know if, uh, you were given the stats before uh, you built the house, you know they only made $80 for the entire month and they probably spent all of this, their money on this meal that they're feeding you and your team and there's a proud part of you that says, you know, I'm not going to take anything from this family. But you recognize in those moments that receiving something actually gives dignity and humanity to the person that's giving. To not receive the meal that the, this, this family would cook for you would actually be the, to deny them the opportunity to feel like they're in an equal relationship with you. And here's the paradox You know, we talked about in suburbia, where most of us live, how it's difficult to actually see the needs of your neighbors. And so we don't know how to be a neighbor sometimes when there's not felt needs that we're aware of. And the irony is that we have felt needs that we are not willing to make our neighbors aware of. And perhaps the art of neighboring begins with the art of receiving. The art of neighboring begins with the art of asking a neighbor for help. To not assume that you're the guy in the road that God's calling to rescue everybody, but to maybe take the posture of saying, I'm the person in the ditch and I need help. Maybe it's significant help. Maybe there's crisis in your life that you need to reach out to your neighbors with. Maybe it's just subtle, everyday kind of help, like you need a ladder, like you need a lawnmower. You know, the person of peace on my block uh, that has really been a part of unlocking my community for me and where I live in Chaparral. Uh, you know, part of that relationship got formed when he came and asked me for a lawnmower because he had one of those non-motorized lawnmowers, which I thought was so cool, but it just doesn't really work for him. So, uh, so I bored him a lawnmower for, for a couple of summers. Uh, you know, sometimes it's those felt needs, it's those needs that we have when we ask someone to respond to a need that actually creates the platform and the environment for a relationship to form. Brene Brown wrote a fantastic book called Daring Greatly, and she talks about the courage of vulnerability. And I just want to touch base on this really, really quick, because I believe that this, uh, we lack courage when it comes to vulnerability. 
We like the person, we like being the person that helps. We like being the person that serves. We like being the person that rescues. But when it comes to being the person that's being helped, being rescued, being served, we have a challenge with that. And the irony is that we follow Jesus, who is God himself, who had no needs, but was not too proud to be served. You know, in Luke chapter 7, we, you, you read the story of the sinful woman that pours this expensive jar of perfume all over Jesus' feet and washes his feet, and, uh, and Jesus just receives in the story. It's this, it's this beautiful story of worship where this, this woman is just pouring out on Jesus, and these religious leaders are around Jesus saying, what is going on? What a waste. And Jesus does not stop her. You know, she, the, the text says she was a sinful woman, which means she was a prostitute who, in the eyes of those religious leaders, in the eyes of other people, she was this big. And by Jesus receiving from this woman, it actually restored her humanity and her dignity. The God that we worship is not too proud to receive, and neither should his followers. But it does include uh, an amount of courage to be vulnerable, to receive from others. And I won't break down the book. There's, Darren Grayley is a great book, and I would encourage you to read it if you want to establish some courage towards vulnerability. Uh, and Brene Brown talks about a number of things, uh, but just a couple I want to highlight. You know, a couple of myths she talks about, that myth number one is vulnerability is weakness. And she uses this quote. Uh, she says, when we were children, we used to think that when we were grown up, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. You cannot experience love without experiencing vulnerability. It's an impossibility. Loving necessitates a level of vulnerability. She talks about another myth. Vulnerability is letting, letting it all hang out. We think that sometimes being vulnerable is becoming one of those oversharers. You got one of those oversharers on your street? They just puke everything out at you. And you're like, I don't want to be that person. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about vulnerability. You know, it's, it's appropriately at the level of the relationship. So if you're, if you're just meeting your neighbor for the first time, you don't go and tell them all of your life's problems. But an appropriate level of vulnerability given the level of relationship. So vulnerability is not weakness. It's actually strength. And when I... You know, sometimes I'm on, I'm on stage and I would, you know, say something that's vulnerable. The amount of comments that I receive after some of those vulnerable moments of people that uh, were inspired, that they saw that as a, you know, that really meant something to me. Thank you for being vulnerable. And, and people respond to vulnerability, yet um, often I'll hear those comments from individuals that have never been vulnerable to me. They like the idea of vulnerability from somebody else. Vulnerability is the last thing I want you to see in me, but the first thing I look for in you. This is one of Brene Brown's main points. Vulnerability is the last thing I want you to see in me, but it's actually the first thing that we look for in somebody else. What if we were so secure in our identity as sons and daughters of God that we had the courage to be break the ice with our own vulnerability. We had the courage to ask for help. We had the courage 
to not just see ourselves as a good Samaritan doing the rescuing, but the man who is in the ditch that desperately needs someone to come and come alongside of them. I believe that this unlocks the art of neighboring. I believe this unlocks the community to followers of Jesus. Looking for a person of peace. Recognizing that God was there before you. And beginning a journey with your own vulnerability instead of assuming that you're the rescuer. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. As we close the service and pray, uh, I'm going to ask God to open your eyes and your hearts to the person of peace that he's already put in place for you. Some, of you. some of you already, when I talk about the person of peace, you already know who that is. You're like, oh yeah, it's definitely this person. Some of you, maybe this is a new idea and a new concept. Uh, and I, will, I would like to pray and ask God to show you who's the person that you've actually gone before me and prepared a relationship for me that will be a part of unlocking the block, will be a part of unleashing what you want to do in the community that you've put, a, put me in. And secondly, I want to pray for you to have the courage to be vulnerable, to not always assume that God's calling you to be the rescuer, but maybe he's actually calling you to break into the community through your own vulnerability and your own needs. So, Father, I thank you that in your perfect wisdom, you know, 2,000 years ago, you sent your disciples out with this simple but profound strategy of look for the person of peace and don't stray from that person. Don't go from house to house, but find that one person. And, Lord, as we think about transforming our communities and our worlds, it's, it feels so big and overwhelming, but yet we know that you gave us one simple instruction, find the person of peace and pour into that relationship. And I pray for every person in this room this morning, God, that you would open their eyes and their hearts to see the person of peace that you have put in place for them. That they would see the neighbor, that they would see that individual that you've strategically planted in their life Lord, because you love them, because you love the communities that you've placed us in, uh, and you filled us with your spirit to be your presence where we live. And so we just pray that there would be this unleashing of your love and your grace and your invitation to your kingdom through the practical invitation that we bring into our communities, into our own lives. And Lord, I pray in that vein for the courage to be vulnerable. Lord, every single one of us has needs. That's why we invited you into our hearts to begin with is because we had a need that we couldn't fill. And Lord, I pray against pride. I pray against the pride that this religious expert was trying to justify. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize very deeply our own need. And not only that you fill it, but you've actually put people in our lives that maybe don't even know you, that maybe are like that despised Samaritan to us, that you've actually placed in our lives to respond to our own needs. And what you're looking for from us is a courage to be vulnerable. And so Lord, we pray for that courage now in Jesus' name. Amen.